know the why human trafficking work is needed to fight for the freedom of modern day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. The International Human Trafficking and Social Justice Conference is the largest and oldest academic conference on human trafficking in the nation. Join us for our 18th annual conference hosted virtually this year on September 22nd through the 24th. You will have the opportunity to learn from and collaborate with thousands of advocates, researchers, experts, and survivors from all over the world. Find out more information and register today on our website, traffickingconference.com. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation episode 112. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, and I've been doing a series on trauma. I think I started with episode 108. I talked about trauma and PTSD. Then I talked about trauma and trauma-informed care. In episode 110, I talked about various forms of trauma treatment. In episode 111, I, I, I went kind of personal in response to a comment I got from a survivor. I talked very interpersonally about that. And today in episode 112, I want to continue this this, uh, series on trauma, but I want to talk about big grand picture of how we traumatize people on a large scale. So over the last several years, I've really been on this quest. Um, It was a different quest than I've been on for a very long time. See, I got my PhD in uh, 2000. And since then, I've had my foot really on the gas pedal, like moving quickly. I first uh, got my PhD, came to the University of Toledo, got my first NIH grant early in my career. That's the National Institutes of Health. Um, And I ended up being funded by the Department of Justice for almost 10 years, a combination of NIH in DOJ grants for 10 years, which is excellent for a a beginning researcher. I published, um, you know, I presented at all the conferences that you're supposed to present at. And I actually got early tenure at my university. I didn't realize that there was really this hierarchy at a university, like you move from assistant professor without tenure, to get on the tenure track or moving toward tenure. So if you're on the tenure track, then you have like six years um, to get tenured or to start applying for tenure. And if you don't get tenure, then you have to leave the university. So I did that in four years. Um, And then I found out what it took to become a full professor. And I did that. So about just to put it in perspective for you, about 29%, um, I looked it up, of associate professors, that's what you become after you get tenured, you're assistant professor, and then you move to associate professor. 
but about 29% of those associate professors actually become full professors. So 70% or so just finish out their career as an associate professor. About less than a third become full professors. So I did that. And just to put in further perspective for you, over 80% of full professors are white, about four out of five. Uh, I'm clearly not white, so I am in the minority there as well. And um, even less of those become distinguished professors, uh, which is when an individual is committed to sustaining a record of exemplary intellectual or creative accomplishments that are necessary to maintain a national or international reputation. So that's me. As you know, I'm a full distinguished professor and I'm at the University of Toledo. So not the biggest university, not the most prestigious, but it's because I really, I don't care where I do my work as long as I can do my work. So my parents are here, uh, were here in the community at the time. My family, now my parents have passed on, so it's not so important that I be here anymore, but I am here. Um, the point is that some of you know that I have been on this journey to really fill the gaps and to respond to human trafficking. I've focused largely on sex trafficking, but I began with this massive social problem of human trafficking, as you all have too, an issue that's disproportionately affecting people of color and women in the U.S. and abroad. So a significant barrier is really the underground, illegal, clandestine nature of the issue um, and the lack of sufficient research and data-driven understanding about the problem. So another problem was that the existing body of literature um, didn't really uh, portray accurately the experience of people. So historic narratives most closely aligned with sex trafficking back in the day was a traditional literature on prostitution. And the literature largely describes subjects as people who suffered early abuse that maybe ran away from home and ended up in street prostitution. So the literature really led practitioners to conclude that individually focused interventions were needed. So if you, if we assessed you, you had problems in your home, you ran away, uh, you became a prostitute, that's some kind of individual dysfunction in you. So the interventions were largely on how to help you. Um, we didn't really focus on customers as being part of the problem or traffickers being part of the problem, none of that. To further sort of add insult to injury, the, the literature that was specific to women and youth really failed to offer any meaningful discussion on the, the destructive nature of the intersectionality of systemic racism and sexism. So we weren't talking about women in ways that were um, 
accurate or from their perspective and experiences. And we weren't including people of color, uh, LBGTQ communities. And so to dismantle these systems, um, it really required that we build new structures that support new narratives and, and that we produced more enlightened scholars. And I know that I told you this is really pie in the sky, esoteric kinds of stuff. But really, if you think about how you drive knowledge, I mean, knowledge is powerful. So who gets to create knowledge can really drive the experiences or the perspectives, how we see other people. So early on, a new wave of scholars became interested in human trafficking. They really wanted to study the issue and the associated oppressions of vulnerable people. And they became discouraged because every time they submitted to these traditional peer-reviewed journals, they were rejected. So at first, the scholarly community didn't understand and grasp this new area of study. So people were jumping ship. They were you know, going and doing work in, in sexual assault and domestic violence, which is all very important as well. But they, they were not doing research into human trafficking or into sex trafficking because they couldn't get published. And if you can't get published, you can't get tenured. And if you can't get tenured, you don't have a job and you've just worked several years to get this job. So we had this problem uh, creating new knowledge and the old knowledge wasn't good, wasn't inclusive. So I ended up back in the day writing and receiving a small grant to bring a group of researchers together from across the U.S. So at that time, we brought in um, Dr. Dominique Rosepowitz. She's now at Arizona State, um, the Office of Sex Trafficking Intervention Research. We brought in Lauren Martin. She's at the University of Minnesota, um, Dr. Lauren Martin, Dr. Rochelle Dalla from the University of Nebraska, Dr. Donna Sabella, who is now at the University of Massachusetts, uh, Dr. Shivari Karandikar, she's at Ohio State, and a few others. And we ended up spending three days together. And together we built the first national society that eventually grew into the Global Association of Human Trafficking Scholars, the purpose of which is to come together to move the knowledge base forward in more inclusive ways and to mentor junior scholars um, so we have developing scholars involved as well as advocate members involved in our, our professional society. So presently, we probably have about 50 plus uh, senior scholars, scholars, developing scholars, and then a whole host, maybe 250 or more um, across the U.S. that are advocate members. I'm sure it's higher than that, but I'm trying to be conservative. But we developed that society so that we can share knowledge, we can talk to each other. We also, at that three-day meeting, birthed the first idea for a new international peer-reviewed journal that was dedicated to human trafficking scholarship. And um, really, Dr. Rochelle Dalla at the University of Nebraska took hold of that, and she developed that journal. And 
her and uh, Dr. Sabella worked very hard to maintain that journal. It started in 2015. They publish uh, four issues per year. And um, so that journal allowed for people to have a place to not only publish, but for people to have a place to, to see a body of knowledge that became more inclusive. So we also needed a place for scholars to present because if you, if you, well, you may not know, but at a university, there's three things that you have to do. You have to publish, um, you have to present your works in different places. And it's great if you are a part of a national or global society. So we built the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Conference in 2004. It was called something else. It's it uh, changed names. Um, that conference is now into its 18th year. It is recognized as the largest and the oldest academic conference on human trafficking in the nation, uh, likely the world. So the conference today has over 100 presenters presenting on human trafficking from various issues of human trafficking to social justice. And we have about 2,000 people that attend. Uh, we have had over 40 countries participate in all 50 states. So that conference, I took hold of that conference and started that conference. But over the years, there's been some notable people that have grown that conference. Um, Jessica Treese, Lisa Fadina, Tasha Perdue, Sandy Sieben. And now it is in the capable hands of Anna Schramm, who has skyrocketed it to a new level. So the goal of the conference is really to equip audiences with the knowledge and skills to promote social justice in the U.S. and around the world. The impact of the conference on social change and the health and well-being of marginalized groups locally, globally, has been tremendous. We have had ripple effects on programs and policies and legislation and research and networking. Because people network at the conference, they go back to their cities and their communities and their villages and they create. We also devote a whole, a full day exclusively to high school students from across the US and they learn about human rights, social justice and human trafficking. So today those three components the scholarly conference, a peer-reviewed journal, a professional association, they exist to attract researchers to the field. And it has been immensely successful. The conference is thriving and continues to grow each year. The Journal of Human Trafficking is made up of interdisciplinary uh, people, a global group of reviewers. And it is publishing progressive research that is inclusive. The Professional Association, the Global Association of Human Trafficking Scholars continues to grow and accept scholars every month. I personally have written over 10 tenure letters and people moving up to associate professor into full professor. 
we are populating this issue with people that are enlightened, educated, passionate, and we're changing the landscape. So dismantling systems of oppression requires three waves of work. First, you have to confront oppressive narratives and you have to implement strategies that allow for course correction. We're doing that. We're doing it by creating more inclusive structures for knowledge building. Second, you have to create avenues for the dissemination of new narratives. We're at the beginning stages of realizing the fruits of our labor. Over the last five years, the conference in particular has seen an increase in the number of presentations that include content on people of color, Black feminism, anti-oppression work, liberation theology, and now missing and murdered Indigenous women. We have accepted more peer-reviewed articles that identify people of color, discuss inclusiveness, and include anti-oppressive narratives in the journal. In the third wave, we hope to really shift from a rescue type of paradigm to a human rights-focused agenda across research and practice and policymaking. So if you're saying to yourself, okay, what does this have to do with trauma? <laughs> What's the point of all of this? Um, particularly as it as we focus on trauma, it's that it's the trauma of a people. It's a total mischaracterization of a story. And when someone mischaracterizes your entire experience, that is traumatic. Because what it does in policies and what it does in programming is it leaves some people out of good quality services. So many people believe that the only form of human trafficking is when a victim is snatched off the street and chained to a bedpost to be sold into sexual slavery. They believe that victims are always unwilling participants who have a trafficker and that the only relationship that exists between the victim and the trafficker involves violence. In reality, many victims of sex trafficking have not been snatched off the street or held in physical chains. Although being manipulated or forced into trading sex on the streets or, or held in physical chains might be a reality for a small minority, it's not the legitimate story for many. Many victims have had relationships with their pimp or their trafficker that involved more than just trading sex, and they've been involved in the sex trade, sometimes without a pimp. And the word rescue doesn't exactly fit the situation for everybody. If we're honest, what some people have experienced in their engagement with law enforcement didn't feel like rescue at all. In reality, most victims may have been treated like a criminal. Maybe they were held in suspicion. Maybe they were handcuffed. Maybe they were initially sent to jail. We call that shooting the wounded. But maybe, just maybe for some, it's an exact uh, experience that they had. But for others, it wasn't their experience at all. We agree, though, that all people should be treated with a level of dignity and respect that we're frankly not seeing right now. So 
some people recognize your efforts to rescue, of course, and to help victims. But then we see people that have rescued the victim stand in front of the camera and get all of the accolades for what they were able to do. And that is warranted and it's awesome. But if you spent three days, two weeks, three months on an investigation, we're failing to recognize and celebrate those survivors that did everything they could to survive. We don't, we don't celebrate that. We don't recognize that as, as a global community. So someone stands in front of the camera, they get all the accolades. The other person who survived all those dark moments isn't celebrated. In fact, in many times, stigmatized. That's traumatizing. So when you don't fit into a stereotype story even of what sex trafficking is, you feel as if you've been victimized in a way that is legitimized by society. You're not even sure if you were a victim at all, the way people are acting. You become trapped in a story that you don't exactly fit into, if you follow me. When you're trapped in someone else's story, you stay confused. You feel violated. You suffered the trauma of having been violated. But most everybody is treating you as if you haven't been victimized. If you didn't have a legitimate stereotyped trafficker or pimp, or you don't fit exactly into the commercial or the fairy tale that they've created, then they don't see you as someone deserving of the best quality services we have to offer. So that is traumatizing. I think getting the the who sex trafficking victims are is also wrong. That's getting the what happens wrong, but getting the who wrong. So who the victims of sex trafficking are is another fairy tale narrative. It's widely believed that anybody can be trafficked into the sex trade as if everybody has an equal chance. So while technically true, the literature is very clear on who's at higher risk. Five populations in the U.S. are at higher risk. Those include marginalized and oppressed populations like people of color, those in poverty, LGBTQ populations, foreign-born, and those with developmental disabilities. Those folks are at higher risk. In addition, anybody can have a history of vulnerability. It's like being bullied or ostracized or othered or who presently or, or historically have a history of being involved in court systems and child welfare systems and mental health and substance abuse and other systems can place people at high risk, not because of their involvement in the systems, but the reasons they're involved in these systems. Many people believe that sex trafficking commonly happens to very young and innocent children here in the U.S. and to foreign victims abroad. 
the image of trafficked children bothers society the most. Many aren't much concerned with understanding or learning about adult victims or, or even trafficked teens that don't fit the stereotype profile that suits them. When you don't fit the who society sees as a victim, you may not be treated with the care you deserve. You might even begin to blame yourself for your victimization. Here's what survivor Jackie said, and I quote, I've had pimps in my past. I've worked by myself in my past and learned to keep all the money. But then again, I gave it to the dope man. I've been raped. I was messed with when I was a child, and that really fucked me up, you know. Nobody helped me. I don't know nothing about sex trafficking. It's a made-up thing so they can help little white girls and not my black ass. So I don't know what you're talking about when you're talking about human trafficking. I've been raped. I had a pimp that took my money and beat me. I've been abused and raped and robbed by customers. All I got was arrested. So what's this human trafficking? So now that the general public is confused on who's affected, what happens, uh, we move to further spin a story that gives the general public the wrong information about the best way to address sex trafficking and sexual exploitation. So a blockbuster movie with the title Taken uh, had hundreds of thousands of people flocking to the movie theater to watch a film about sex trafficking starring Liam Neeson, if you remember this. Neeson plays an upper middle class father and former agent whose daughter graduates high school and takes a summer trip to Paris where she's trafficked into the sex trade. In the movie Taken, Neeson almost single-handedly rescues his own daughter from her traffickers. In the movie, his daughter is taken by foreign traffickers once she leaves the country. Even though the average American citizen loves a story where the foreigner is the bad guy and the American saves the day, in reality, Americans are some of the largest purchasers of sexual services in the world. So technically, Neeson, Neeson's uh, daughter may have even been safer leaving the country, <laughs> technically. So also, many of us don't know uh, any Liam Neesons in our world that are willing to travel to various countries and even, or, or, even around the corner um, to violate rules, to break laws in order to save us. Finally, once this daughter is rescued, there's no mention of any trauma that she experienced. Actually, at the end of the movie, I think she's thinking of her idea of um, singing or dancing. I don't remember what it was because all is well. And, you know, your popcorn bucket is empty and you're ready to leave the movie theater feeling great that there are saviors like Liam Neeson out in the world. How harmful is this fairy tale to help in society understand that many people's experience of violence and exploitation while trading sex um, was legitimate, even though it didn't uh, have components of this stereotype version that we want to believe. Movies like Taken, media reports, documentaries, these types of tales have been planted in many people's minds about what trafficking is and how we should respond to it. 
in reality, it's it's likely that most of the victims that we work with never left the country. Secondly, many victims don't come from upper middle class families. And third, there's nobody coming to save them in the way that's portrayed in these movies. The problem with getting caught up in society's preferred narrative is if your story doesn't fit the narrative, then few people will recognize or validate your experience of violence while involved in the sex trade as being one that garners the care and access to resources and recovery as the other people who do fit the narrative. Sometimes then you start to believe that you're unworthy of support and love and care and concern. So to end the trauma that we've imposed on a people by telling a story that isn't necessarily theirs and by stigmatizing and shaming those who don't fit neatly into this fairy tale uh, version of sex trafficking is that we re-traumatize people. More than that, though, we block them from receiving our love, our care, our concern, our services, and our resources. So let's tell the truth and get the story straight. If you've been involved in the sex trade and experienced sexual violence, you have suffered trauma. Whether you identify as a sex trafficking victim or not, um, you're worthy of dignity, respect, quality treatment. We're changing the narrative. We're changing the paradigm on how research is being conducted and where it can be published. We're changing the spaces for discussions such as the conference. And we're bringing scholars into the fold and mentoring them on the questions that need to be answered and the diversity of those that need to be asked those questions. We're changing the landscape to one of inclusiveness and we're dismantling those systems that wish to exclude, divide, and therefore say who's worthy and who's not worthy. We're ending the trauma, not in the narrow definitions of what we believe trauma-informed care is, but in the expansive idea in bringing inclusiveness and dismantling racism, sexism, homophobia, and all the things that offer you depression, despair, and disrespect. Next week, I'm going to talk about trauma, but I'm going to talk about internal individual trauma and how to heal from trauma. So until then, the fight continues. Let's not just do something. Let's do the best thing. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues.